Hey, and welcome to the CCWC podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. Well, speaking of children, I um, was reminded this week as I was preparing for this sermon and uh, this week, I attempted to try to, to kind of get around some of the issues of last week by preparing the sermon with steel-toed boots on, and it didn't matter. God still found a way to step on some toes beneath my steel-toed boots as well. But it was interesting as, as I was kind of preparing that God brought forth this, uh, this, this concept, this understanding of the key. The key, so to speak, of what it means to live within the context of a Christian home. And some of you might check out now because you say, well, I, I live alone or I'm, I, I'm single or I live in the dark by myself. And for whatever reason, you, you, you may check out. Let me just say, it, it, this, this uh, specific passage goes far beyond just simply a Christian home and also encompasses, envelops the, the, the idea of a local church, the concept of living together um, in, 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 in the home, the main Christian family, which is the family of God. But as I began to look through this and just consider what the keys or the key might be, I reflected upon the passage that we concluded on last week and the one highlight specifically uh, in, greatest, in, in the greatest fashion today, which is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. And this specific passage reflects upon the concept that there is, uh, there is a key to what it means to, uh, to live in, in Christian fellowship with one another. And while the, the first portion of this, this, this book that we've been reading through, Ephesians, uh, reflected upon uh, authenticity and the authenticity of the truth and, and, and what proper theology looks like, the second half is much more practical. But they are not in any way, in any fashion, separated from one another. In fact, the practical comes specifically from a right understanding of who God is and how He's created us to live. When I was younger, I was, I was in the, the Boy Scouts. I was actually in the Cub Scouts. I, I don't think I ever even made it to Boy Scouts. I did enjoy Scouts, but uh, the, the troop that I was in disip, or, uh, disbanded uh, shortly after I, I got into middle school, and so I didn't really move along uh, in, in the whole thing. But one thing, one of the, the greatest things that I remember were some of the events, the activities that we had, and one specifically was called the Pinewood Derby. The Pinewood Derby was an interesting event. Uh, it was one where you would basically get a kit and you would put together this kit so that you might be able to fashion it and shed light on the situation. Uh, you might be able to fashion it in a way where it can be placed on a track and it can compete against other uh, cars, other, other people, other, other Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts kit so that they might be able to try to get down the track quicker than you. The interesting thing was about this, uh, this, this project was that my father decided that we were going to work together, which I was very uh, happy about because I didn't know how to use most of the tools that he had in, uh, in his workshop. And so we, we got this kit and we put it together. And my one big thing that I wanted more than anything else for my car was I wanted it to have flames on the side because for whatever reason, I thought in my fourth or fifth grade mind that the flames were going to make this thing travel quicker. And little did I know that in some ways that was the secret sauce. When we got to the Pinewood Derby, we began to, to race our cars, kind of warming up a little bit. And when we did so, it was kind of just a fun, let's just put them down a couple of times. And quickly I recognized that my car was a little faster than everybody else's car that was in my den. 
In fact, quickly, my car won the, 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 the championship of the, the den, and at, at that moment, the other Boy Scouts that were there, the older boys, all wanted to race my car. And one by one, my car beat each one of those cars until eventually I was uh, informally or unofficially crowned the, the, the champion of the entire, uh, the entire Boy Scout organization of America. And I think that was in my mind only, but hey, you know what? And I, and I remember that moment because I remember the questions from all the other Boy Scouts. And eventually I remember the questions from some of the other Boy Scouts' fathers as they came to me and said, what did you do to make your car so fast? What was the secret sauce that you used to be able to make this work? What was the main key ingredient that made you win? And I would just lean in and say, Check out those flames. <laughs> I think it probably had more to do with aerodynamics and the placement of the weight and maybe a little bit uh, of prayer that I prayed over my car beforehand. But I can tell you right now that there was a specific key. However, in life, we also recognize that in most cases, there's not a key, a special key that will solve everything. There's not a silver bullet that'll make everything perfect and work out just fine. But here's the amazing thing about God. In this specific passage, as we walk through this blueprint of understanding what it means to operate, to live within a Christian home, there is a specific key. There is a key, while we are going to talk about some practical things, there is a key that brings forth this concept of harmony and peace and honoring of God in all that we do. Paul showed how the, the Jew and the Gentile could work together, could live together in, in harmony under Christ in, in chapter 2 through 4. And then later in 4, he stressed even now and revealed how the believer, the individual believer, can be filled with the Spirit and can live with others. But here specifically, he tackles this, so to speak, mystery in chapter 5, verse 21, and then moving into chapter 6 as well. The detailed understandings here of, of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 can be uh, spelled out in practical form throughout the, throughout the course of the rest of this chapter. Verse 21 comes on the heels specifically of a guided relationship, recognizing that the person who follows God, the person who submits to God and submits to one another out of reverence for Christ, is one who, in verse 18, is, is, is filled with the Spirit. In verse 19, speaks and sings and makes music. It's an outward expression of who they are. In verse 20, they give thanks. Their perspective is not one of taking or of always receiving, but of giving, of giving to others. And then verse 21, submitting to others, recognizing the fact that it's all done under the umbrella of our Savior. And this is the verse that we discover one further evidence of being filled with the Spirit, is that the man or woman who graciously submits to one another is to do so in fear and love and respect of the Savior of the world. The one who is spirit-filled does so with a humble heart, does so considering others more important than themselves and willing to subject to Christian fellowship even when it might not be easy. Remember that kindness versus niceness we talked about last week? This is going out on the kindness aspect, recognizing that sometimes being kind isn't always the same as being nice. And then also to glorify God for the sake of Jesus Christ. 
So this sets the table, so to speak, of, of where we go and the recognition of what these relationships look like. It's interesting to note that throughout this, this specific passage that Paul also writes so, some similar words, some, some similar uh, instructions to the church in, in, in the church in Colossians. And, and with them, his, his recognition is that there are specific issues that are taking place in different churches throughout the world in that time. Let me just throw this out there as we talk about timeless truths or universal principles. I would say that many of these these things are still a struggle within the context of the church, even here today, a couple of thousand years later, on another continent, another place in the world, another culture. And so there is, there is nothing more true or necessary for us to do than to take Scripture at its word and understand that God, while He did have an original audience when He inspired these words through Paul to this church, there are some universal things, some timeless truths that we can pick up on. The first part starts after verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, starts with uh, the concept, the understanding of spousal relationships. Spousal relationships between a husband and wife. And I believe that Paul starts here because he recognizes that the relationship, the foundation for the family is the relationship between a husband and a wife. In fact, he recognizes the fact that there is this mentality that Satan has, and perhaps some of you have experienced this or you've seen it before, that, that Satan attempts to try to, to, to envelop or to invoke this, this idea of divide and conquer. Meaning that if he can divide a, a husband and a wife on things, especially large things, starting usually with small things, that he can conquer the entire family. He recognizes, Paul recognizes the importance of, of, of keeping this close bond and not allowing any cracks, any slight cracks to be, to be made or, or, or any small foothold to be taken within the life and the relationship of, of a spouse, a husband and a wife within a Christian household. Just yesterday, my, my son, uh, every once in a while, will we'll get them a, a special drink. Uh, typically, it's a situation where you go to the store, and while you're there, you let them pick out something that they can have uh, for dinner. And my son, he likes cream soda, and he wanted this cream soda drink. And so we were sitting down at dinner and getting ready to, to eat, and he runs over the refrigerator, and he gets out his cream soda. and says, can I have this with this dinner? I said, yeah, that, that's fine. And so he picks up uh, the, 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 the bottle, and he brings it over, and I watch him try to turn that lid and try to get that lid off. And with his, his, all his might, he tries as hard as he can. And eventually he does one of these things where, okay, it's starting to hurt a little bit. And he says, dad, will you open this for me? And now I had recognized the fact that he had done a little bit of this when he was trying to get it off. And so I knew that if I were just to throw that lid off, that it was going to explode everywhere. And so what I decided to do was just kind of go a, a little bit slower and just kind of allow a little bit of the fizz to come out, just create that small little crack. And all of a sudden, I hear from my daughter who's just sitting on the other side of my son, Dad, just rip the Band-Aid off. And for whatever reason, I did. <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, enough of the carbonation had already gotten out of the bottle and so it didn't explode everywhere. But let me just tell you, that is often Satan's tactic, is just to, just to turn it just a little bit, just to shake things up and turn it just a little bit, and then eventually, or maybe all of a sudden, rip that Band-Aid off, and then that separation takes place. Verse 22 reads like this, 22 through 24, Wives, submit to your, to your, own, to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in 
everything. That seems pretty bold for Paul to say. Basically, if we were to read this in context now, what he's saying is, wives, you have no power. Men, do whatever you want. You're in charge. You're the one. But let's just kind of look specifically at some of this stuff. It says, wives, submit yourselves. Submission is an interesting thing because it doesn't mean that you are in chains. It doesn't mean that you have no choice. In fact, submission actually literally means that you yield your own rights. Recognizing the fact that in this specific situation, and that's the first point there if you're following in your note guide, is that to submit means to yield one's rights. The, the word obey is not in this specific passage instead, or the word uh, 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 being forced is not in this passage. Instead, the word used there is this idea of submission because the reality is that women, wives, have specific rights, but here Paul is recognizing, hey, there is an opportunity, what, what we would consider, what I consider a teachable moment, meaning the church, the, the, the home should reflect the church and recognizing the fact that if Jesus is the head, Jesus is, is, is the groom, so to speak, that we in submission as the bride would submit. We would, we would, we would, be, we would yield our own rights so that God might be able to lead us. There's nothing here that would, would indicate the fact that, that, a, that a, a wife is lesser, that a wife has no, has, has no opinion, ha, has no, no place to speak, no place to talk. Instead, it is simply the reality that, that Paul is using as an opportunity for us to see how to live and a recognition for that as well. The intention here is a woman ought to submit to her husband as an act of submission to the Lord. In fact, as I said earlier, Colossians also records this. In Colossians 3, 23, it says, Whatever you do, do, work as you would with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. That's at the conclusion of all of these points together, which we'll get to a point uh, at, at, at a later moment as well. But this specific instance or understanding is as a wife, there is a, ne- a need, a necessity to, to, to submit, to work, to, to, to love the Lord, and to do so in everything that you do. In fact, the second point under that as we continue through this is a wife should submit to her husband as an act of submission to the Lord, a, a, a head of the wife, a term that comes with responsibility. And this is the interesting thing here as well. If, if a wife is to submit to a husband, that gives great responsibility to the husband. Because the question that I ask is, what is she submitting to? Is she submitting to an overlord? Is she submitting to someone who's going to wield that power? Is she submitting to someone that's God-honoring, that loves her more than himself, and in every way is attempting to try to reveal Christ and show her, lead her to Christ in every way possible? Is it done so with a humble position or humble sacrifice? In fact, the, the comparison here to Christ is strong. He earned the right to be the head of the body by choosing the cross, Husbands, have you earned the right to be the head of your family by first choosing the cross? Did you wear your steel-toed shoes today? Guys, if she's going to submit to you, you better preach and be living the truth. And then the longest portion of this passage comes, in fact, on the heels of what I just said, this idea of, of husbands to wives. Chapter uh, uh, 5, continuing in verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her 
by the washing with water through the word. And I'm going to pause for just a moment. This verse 25, he gave himself up for her. Paul's now revealing that this is not just a one-sided submission where a wife has to always submit to a husband, but there's this reciprocal relationship of love and respect. Not only the expression of the Lord's love, but an example of of how a husband ought to devote himself to the wife's good, to the wife's uh, life, to the the, the wife's uh, journey with Jesus as well. To give oneself up to death for his beloved, for the beloved, is a more extreme expression of devotion than the wife is called to make. And so here's the deal. It's, it's almost easier for the wife simply because in some ways she just has to submit to a husband. Husband, the, the mantle, the, the call is high for you as it is to, to, to basically act, follow me as I follow Christ, to act as an example a guide for the kingdom. The first point of that is this, the extreme call of the husband is to emulate Christ's example by giving oneself up to one's spouse in complete and humble devotion. And I know we're walking through this spousal thing, and I'll just mention it for just a moment. I know that there's probably many of you in here saying, hey, I'm not a husband, I'm not a wife, this doesn't really apply. Well, guess what? This does apply because of the recognition that it also is symbolic of how we are to live as the bride of Christ. But at the same time, there are relationships within your life that you probably have impact on or can have an impact on, whether it be a child who's married or whether it be a parent or a brother or a sister or a cousin. And therefore, you can speak truth into the life of these individuals as well. Pick it back up and I'll, I'll reread 26. It says, To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blame, blemish, but holy and blameless. Wash with water through the word. It, it comes with responsibility through a high call. And the point is this the role of a husband comes with a high call of spiritually leading one's wife. This idea of of washing with the word is an interesting one. The Lord Jesus died not only to to bring forgiveness, but also to effect a new life of holiness to to his bride. So, So not only did he die for us, but he wants us to live differently. He wants us to grow, to be more like him, to, to, to live in peace and in holiness with him. This idea is, is capped off in several different passages. John 3, 5 reads like this. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Titus 3, 5 reads like this. He saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Or 1 Peter 1, 23, For you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This concept, it, it directs us, it reflects upon, it, it is it's a shining beacon light on Jesus. And as we look at this idea of what it means to, to be a, a husband that, that, that leads a wife, we need to be a reflection. We need to be the, 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 the catalyst, and we need to be the one directing towards Jesus. Verse 28, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. Now, this is pretty clear. 
This is pretty clear that there is an actual connection that takes place as their own body, loves himself, his own body. The basics for such expression for this this type of teaching can be found in Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24, going all the way back to the beginning, when God created the world, he created all things, he created uh, human beings. In verse 24, it reads like this, that is why a man leaves his wife and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. You know, verse 31 here says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's not, that is not just new to, to, to Paul. He's taking this concept out of the Old Testament, recognizing the fact that this is real. This is a real connection. Something new has been made. If a husband and wife become one flesh, then the man uh, the, and the man and wife that love one another and come together, they become part of one another. They become one entity together. In fact, the point is this, when spouses become one flesh, they become part of one another, means that they, they are now one body, they are now one together, they are united. Next verses, the next couple of verses explain this in, in, in verse 32, and I'll, I'll give you a minute, don't, yeah, leave that up there for just a second. In verse 32, it reads like this, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and his wife must respect, and the wife must respect her husband. And so the, then Paul kind of does this, okay, back to what I was talking about originally, back to the main point, which is how Christ engages with the church, with the body, with, with, with his bride. Yes, there are these, these metaphoric things that, that take place, and this all makes sense, and the examples make sense together, but, but we must always realize the importance of Christ and his church. That's where the mystery comes from. The profound truth of the union of Christ and his bride, the church, is, is beyond an unaided human understanding. We, we can't understand this fully, but, but Christ does. In verse 33, it talks about this love and, and this response, this love and respect, and the way that this, this basically is a, is, a, is a cycle of just continuation together. When spouses become one flesh, they become part of one another. And I can't say this enough, that that relationship, that relationship between husband and wife, while it is foundational for a home, it's also a, a, to be a perfect picture of how Christ inter- interacts, how Christ engages, how Christ intends for his church and him, for, for church and him to function. Chapter 6, verse 1 transitions now to parents and children. Parents and children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first command with a promise. I'm going to pause there. This is the first command with a promise. Again, Paul is borrowing from, uh, this time from Exodus, from, from Moses' writings, and here he, he pulls out this commandment, this one literal, one of the, the, the ten main commandments, and he brings it to the forefront. Verse 3 says, so that it may be, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth, which is a continuation of that commandment as well. On the earth. Where this compound, where this, where this, this command, I should say, occurs, this promise together occurs. The specific application was, was not necessarily directly appropriate for the Ephesians, but it certainly made sense in this general application, which is this, and it's very simple. You might amen this, but children, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. There's, there's obviously a command there, but there's also, it's the only one, a command with a promise. 
Most of it's in here uh, are, are in one of those or maybe both of those phases where you're either a parent or you're a child or maybe you're both. So you kind of have this going both ways. Children, obey your parents. And here, here's the, the good part, and I know that you said amen, and I say amen to that too, but guess what? Parents, you're not off the hook. Because just like the spousal relationship, when there is taught submission that's, that is important, the person who is, is the one who is being submitted to bears responsibility because of the fact that God has given them power and impact and influence over the other. There's a literal command that tells children to obey their parents. And how does that reflect? What does that mean to the parents in the room or the parents that are reading or the parents that, that, that want to live in a, with a Christian household? That means that we better have it together. doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect, but that means that we better be following the right one. And we better be Christ's followers. Because of this command the obligation, uh, and this obligation, the door is wide open for parents to wield power over their children. And Paul recognizes that. That's why he continues on as he talks about this, is specifically with fathers who also have this idea or this concept of being the one who the wife is submitting to. In verse 4, it reads like this, Fathers, do not exacerbate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It is interesting to me that, that wife is, or uh, excuse me, mother is absent from that portion. I don't know if it's specifically, I've read some different commentaries on it, but I, I'm not sure if it's specifically because of the fact that, uh, that there were men that were doing this, or maybe it has to do more with the fact that there, there were men that were prone to it in that area, or maybe it's because of the fact that in a lot of ways, as we, as we read this specific passage, we see that, that men have been elevated in a certain way within the home to have this, this, all, this higher uh, um, power is the wrong word. So I'll say authority. That's probably the right word. Not probably, it is. And so that'll work there. And so with this specific instance, we recognize the fact that Paul zeroes in on fathers. Again, the man of the household. Do not exacerbate. Fathers must surrender any right that they have or they feel to act unreasonably towards children. In fact, children are commanded through the command to submit to and obey their parents because God has given them parents as his own agenda to raise them and teach them. Furthermore, when children are taught to honor their father and mother, they will, be, have, they will have trouble, they will have no trouble, so to speak, or, or uh, excuse me, honoring their earthly, or excuse me, their heavenly father. In some ways, this is an opportunity for, for us as parents to be able to teach our children what it's like to live in unity, in harmony, in peace with God the Father. There are several ways, though, that a father or a parent can exacerbate their children. It can be achieved in a lot of different ways because of the authority that the parents have. The main goal, however, for parents should always be this, to produce godly and productive offspring that love God and love people. The way parents commonly might exacerbate their children include eccentric behavior. Eccentric behavior uh, centers sometimes around uh, just basically um, bringing, what I would say this is bringing to the table something that's erratic, that's, that's not understandable, that children are unable to process. Bringing to the table something where, hey, this is, I, I'm up and I'm down and I just, I, 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 I'm, I'm taking it all out on my child. Another one is quick temper. Quick temper. 
A couple of years ago, my, my, uh, one of my kids asked my wife, how come dad's always upset on Sunday afternoon? And the answer was because the Browns play at one o'clock every week. I can get some amens on that. Another one is inconsistency of rules and discipline. Here's the rules I want you to follow. And when they follow them, you turn around and say, well, you didn't do it right or you didn't do it quick enough. And so this inconsistency brings forth a, a, a confusion in the mind. Another one is neglect. Well, this one can get close to home, especially in a world where, there's, where work is important and we've got things we have to do. And, and it's easier just to kind of give the, uh, the kid a, an iPad or a phone and just take care of yourself for a while. And that, that neglect begins to set in. Another one is various forms of mental, emotional, and physical abuse. And this isn't an exhaustive list by any means, but these are simply ways in which Satan attempts to try to destroy our children. You know, God will hold us accountable for the ways that we uh, bring up our children or the children in our lives. He doesn't take those things lightly. So to bring children up in the training and instruction of the Lord, parents should lead by example and with gentle, consistent instruction of the Word of God. Kids should be taught to think rationally and independently so that they, can, when it comes time for them to make a decision for Jesus, for them to step forward in, in His call, when He knocks at the door and they finally open it, that they would put their faith in the one who saved them. To bring children up in the training and instruction of the Lord, parents should lead by example and in the gentle and consistent instruction of the Word of God. There's one more section here that's quite puzzling, especially for, for us and, and the history that our nation has. Starting in verse 5, it says, Slaves, obey your earthly master with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor with their eye, to win their favor with their eye is when their eye is on you, excuse me, but as slaves to Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. You know, slaves in the Old Testament or New Testament, there, there were was, there was societal situations specifically where slaves and even where divorce was talked about in Scripture. But the reality is Paul in no way is looking at this and in any way is condoning or encouraging slavery. In fact, what he's doing is recognizing the fact that there is an actual subculture. There's an actual injustice. There's something that's taken place and there's an opportunity, which is often how God works uh, in the midst of the darkness. There is something negative or bad happening. Let me use this opportunity to be able to reveal Christ in and through it. And so in no way is Scripture or is Paul saying that there should be slaves or there should be masters. Instead, what he's doing is recognizing the fact that there are slaves and there are masters, and he's encouraging within that one key thing. And it doesn't have anything to do with the relationship as much as it does. It has to do with the relationship. It doesn't as much to do with the relationship as it does the heart of the person in the relationship. The point is this, do not allow a hardening of heart to take place as a result of any relationship, rather facilitate reciprocal respect. Even, and I'll say this, it's not part of the point, even if you're not receiving respect from the other person. 
And it's easy for me to stand up here and say this because I'm not in ancient Egypt. I'm not a slave at that time. I'm not a slave in Rome. I'm not a slave to anyone right now. But let me tell you, in many cases or in a lot of cases, we find ourselves in relationships where Satan will creep in and he'll attempt for whatever reason, this person wronged me or they didn't talk to me or, or, or they, didn't, uh, you know, they, they didn't do what I expected them to do. They didn't meet my expectations. And our heart begins to harden as a result of that. And so that concept, that understanding is that, that Paul knew is that, hey, look, sometimes in the context of relationships, especially when there's a power struggle, there's going to be resentment. There's going to be a hardening of heart, even in marriages. Because, hey, he didn't do the dishes and he told me he was going to. Or she didn't come home on time when she said she would and now I'm late for that, right? So sometimes those things take place. And what Paul is saying is, hey, in the context of relationships, whether there's a power struggle or not, always, in every case, look to him and don't allow your heart to be hardened. He does tag on in verse 9, and we're going to conclude with this verse here. It says, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Again, recognizing the opportunity to be able to take something in the world and say, okay, this is taking place. Let us now use this as a means, as a way of being able to communicate the truth and what the relationship between God and his church is to look like. As we conclude this portion of the passage in this week, we circle back specifically to the key. The key, that secret sauce, that one thing that takes all of these practical things that Paul has said and envelops them into one statement, one verse. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 once again reads, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what's the secret sauce for a Christian household for all of our relationships is this final point. Let us reveal that we are filled by the Spirit by graciously submitting to one another for the glory of God and in the fear of Jesus Christ. Let us submit to one another by by being filled with the Spirit. May our our lives be just an outpouring, an overflowing of being filled with the Spirit of who God is and what He's done, and so that every relationship we have, specifically now, even in the context of talking about our own Christian house, may it be a situation where all that we are, all that we do is a response to, is is an outcome of the relationship we have and the infilling we have of the one who loves us. One who's filled with the Spirit is one who is humble in heart and considers others more important than themselves and is willing to to subject to Christian fellowship and the glory of God for the sake of Jesus no matter what happens, no matter where you live. to skip forward to this. And, and, and here's, here, here's, the, here's the main crux. Relationships aren't always perfect. There is no perfect home. There is no perfect marriage. There is, none of these things are perfect. But there is a perfect God. And that perfect God has chosen to step into this world so that we might be able to experience real and lasting eternal perfection with him. 
John Wesley, the, the one who, from whom we, we take our theology from uh, in a lot of ways, is one who believed in this concept of a means of grace. And a, a simple, um, a simple uh, definition of a means of grace basically centers around the concept of a physical thing, a physical action in life that brings forth an opportunity for spiritual growth. Often when we do a, a baptism service or when we take communion, those are means of grace. When we have a prayer time, when we read the word, those are means of grace. When we interact with somebody else in fellowship or in worship, that's a means of grace. Sometimes a means of grace comes just by a tangible item, by something that we see, something that we hold. I don't think I'd be wrong to say that here moment as, as we gather in this place where we join online, that to some extent there needs to be a measure of, of surrender and a measure of, of recalibration. When we look at the secret sauce or when we look at the key to what it, what it means to live in, in a, not just a Christian home, but in a Christian culture, an understanding of, of what it is to be part of the family of God, this main key has everything to do with submission to the one and magnifying the one who has come into our presence. Thank you again for spending time with us today. Thank you especially to those of you who give to CCWC. It is through your faithfulness that makes this ministry possible. Also, if you have any questions about today's teaching or if you want to learn more about CCWC, feel free to contact our office, check the web, or follow us on our social media platforms. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we do encourage you to take a moment to subscribe and share it with friends. Let this be a blessing to someone else that you love in your life. You're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning for worship, or until then, we'll catch you on the next one. God bless.